Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are about to open your word. We are about to open text that has been divinely inspired, that your Holy Spirit has given through the author and made perfect and all that is needed for faith in Christ and life in him. And yet, Father, we know that for some of us, for many of us, for all of us at times, we can open this perfect, good word, and at best, it feels like ancient history. Not enough to hold our attention compared with our passions and pleasures. So, Father, we come as we open your word, as we, as knowing what we need every time we come to your word, the help of your spirit, even in our hearts, that this per, pure, perfect, true gospel would be to us all that it is to you, that our hearts would not be closed, that our sin would not, um, uh, would not close our eyes to life everlasting and peace with you for the sake of our momentary pleasures. May your Holy Spirit work life and even abundant life in those who hear this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We are nearing the end of our survey of First and Second Chronicles, in many ways the end of our study of the history of God's people that has gone back to Ruth and even into Judges. And at this point, you have likely recognized that we are watching a people in decline. Despite some encouraging moments here and there, an encouraging report from Kings like Hezekiah, the wonderful story we heard last week about the repentance of Manasseh. Despite this, the overall trajectory that we seem to be witnessing is one of increasing idolatry and rejection of God in Judah. This people now seems fixed on that road to judgment and wrath that the northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen to. It now seems almost impossible that a, even a son of David, even a little M Messiah, a king from the line of David, could come along and right this ship, bring this people lasting peace with God. Now today, we are going to meet King Josiah, perhaps the last best hope for God's people as they stand on the brink of ruin. Let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We'll read verses 1 to 13 to begin. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. 
For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved images and the metal idols. And they chopped down the altars of the balls in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars and stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, and in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Isaiah. Azaliah and uh, Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and from Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem." And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams and for the buildings and the kings of Judah, that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jatha and Obadiah, the Levites, the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshalam of the sons of the Kohathites to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. As Chronicles draws to a close... The first readers of Chronicles, the returned exiles from Babylon, would have looked on Josiah with extra special affection. For them, David and Samuel would likely have felt like pretty ancient history. But Josiah had lived only a few generations prior to those who first received this history. To those readers, Josiah would have much more felt like this picture of the good old days. This was the last time that they'd really got to enjoy a righteous son of David on the throne, that kind of faithful king that they would really have loved to see again. Our first point this morning is this. In Josiah, we appear to meet the last hope for a good son of David. Right from the introduction, we're meant to see Josiah as being peerless in his faithfulness to God. Although he's the birth son of wicked Ammon, he shares that introduction that other righteous kings receive, being called a son of David. We see him more as kin to his ancestor David and see him as honoring this title of being David's son. And he gets the extra special commendation of not having turned to the right or the left. More than any other king, we have a man who doesn't want to be tempted from his devotion and faithfulness to God. Throughout this account, we get regular insights, not just into Josiah's righteous actions, but into Josiah's heart. 
We are meant to be left with no question that this is a man who from his very heart loves the Lord and loves the Lord's people. This begins in Josiah's life right from when he is very young. Our author says, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And it is worth pausing on this for a moment because one of the most painful effects of pragmatism on the church is how many people, even parents, have given up believing that youth and children can bear, can show the fruit of a regenerate believer. We buy into the lie that is created by our contemporary culture, which our culture now just believes is a given that children, teens, increasingly young adults, don't have a choice to be anything other than self-involved. We throw up our hands and say kids will be kids, and we know what that means. It means that kids can't love the worship service of God's people. That it would be impossible for teenagers to consider other people in their church family and care for their needs. It's just impossible for children to love to pray, to see God's word as God's word. The means of grace just don't work on kids. This attitude is neither gracious to our kids nor confident in God's spirit. We miss when we say this, that without being born again, it does not matter if you are five or 50 or 500 years old. No child, no adult can love the church can see the worship of God's people as good, can care for his people, can appreciate the means of grace, can be changed by them. In fact, it is often our secret boredom, another evil perpetuated by pragmatism, our own boredom with the things God gives us, our preference for our own entertainments and pleasures, many of which we've tried to import into the church. It's that boredom in us that leaves us totally confident that it would be impossible for any of this to have any power, even spiritual power, in the lives of our kids. But, brothers and sisters, if we truly believe that God can do what is impossible for man, then let us apply the gifts God has given and hold out the hope for our children that we should be holding out for anyone, that God can regenerate dead hearts, even the hearts of the very young, to be filled with the Spirit, to love his salvation, to love Jesus, to want the gifts of grace, which would grow them in love of God and others, Pray this for your children. Disciple your children with confidence in God and his spirit. Bring them to the worship service, to the gathering of the family of God. Encourage them with God's word. Do it with hope and expectation. God does reveal to little children what has been hidden from many of the wise. 
Do not push your children away from Christ. Draw them to him just as he drew them to himself. We see what the Holy Spirit can do in children in young Josiah. His righteous actions as king, even as a boy, flow from a deep affection in his heart, a love for God, a love for his people. And this motivates him at a young age to righteous leadership, a righteous leadership that older, supposedly wiser, more experienced kings before him were terrified to attempt the extent to which Josiah desires that this would be God's people, God's land. Altars are not just moved, they're not just ripped down, they are ground down and disintegrated. He leaves no stone left unturned. Josiah wants to watch while the altars are torn down. The account of Kings tells us that it takes all the way from Jeroboam of Israel to Josiah to tear down the great calf altars that were raised in Israel. Priests, idol worshipers are not just rebuked, they are executed. They are destroyed along with their wicked creations that would lead God's people astray. Josiah is not afraid to see this people called back to God as completely and totally as God desires. He wants to see this land cleansed and God's people cleansed. And he is not just content to see this in Judah. As the son of David, the king of God's people from the line of David, Josiah is jealous to see all 12 tribes unified as the people of God. He chooses. He I will bear responsibility, not just for Judah, but for the northern kingdom. He goes there to tear down altars. He goes there to call God's people back to the worship of the Lord. He carries out this cleansing in all the land that was given to David. And this restoration culminates in the people of Judah and the northern kingdom, the remnant who did not go off into exile, participating in an extensive, thorough restoration of the house of God, using everyone available for the task. Again, no half measures for Josiah. He wants to bring about the full restoration of God's people for the glory of God and for the sake of the people God has given to him as his responsibility. Josiah cares more deeply about what it means to be a son of David than perhaps any son of David who has yet appeared. He deeply desires the relationship as God's son that was promised to David for his descendants. He deeply desires that God would be found by God's people in his house, just as Solomon declared would be true when that house was built, that they would delight to find him there and that God would hear their prayers and they would delight in the peace with him that they knew by knowing that he was in his house. But this faithfulness in Josiah is in fact just an introduction to perhaps the most famous event in his life, which shows so clearly the heart of this son of David. Let's continue to read 2 Chronicles 34, verse 14 to 33. 
While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book." So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to this effect. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. And the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in this, his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel, and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers." There is some disagreement as to whether the book that is found in the temple is the whole of the Pentateuch or Deuteronomy in particular, where we get that final summary of the law and the covenant and hear the warnings and exhortations Moses gives regarding disobedience or obeying and having peace with God. When this book is found, 
When those exhortations and those warnings are read for Josiah, we get our best look into Josiah as a man and as a king. He could have been unmoved by this book. He could have been content. I have done as well as I can with what I had available to me. How could God create a case against a man who did the best with what he had? He could even be happy. This is, this is good. I'm glad that the law has been found. There is more to do, I see, but we can commit to doing that. He could have been upset to find that all the good work that he had done just wasn't enough. All this righteousness I have brought about in God's land turns out his bar was higher than I ever imagined. Such have been the responses of many people when they are confronted with the warnings, the exhortations, the character of God and his word. But this man, whose heart we already know is devoted to God, hears the scriptures. And there he is confronted with God's holiness. And then he is confronted with the sinfulness of himself and his people. He is confronted with all that they deserve. He's confronted with the reality that it would take nothing less than God's undeserved salvation to lead this people to anything less than judgment. His response is not planned or calculated. He just breaks down. He weeps. The response of Josiah to hearing God's words in the law is not unlike Isaiah's response to seeing God with his eyes. Remember what it took for Josiah's grandfather Manasseh to be brought to repentance. Nothing less than a visible taste of the judgment of God, that that's what it took. We've said that if you belong to God and that is what it requires, God will certainly apply that means But in the case of Josiah, that same humility, that same grief over sin, the same desperation to repent is worked just by hearing from God's word, just by hearing God's voice. That response would have been an exhortation to those first readers of Chronicles, for they themselves were being taught the law, which many of them had forgotten, and being called back to it after their exile. Could God's word work in them, God's voice alone work in them, the same brokenness for sin and dependence on God that it had worked in Josiah? What power does God's word have over you? Can it leave you in awe of a perfect, holy creator? Can it break your heart over sin? Can it show you why sin is so hateful? Lead you to repent? Lead you to cast yourself upon a loving and merciful God? To hope in him rather than yourself? Can God's word do that to you? For some of us, whether it is up on a shelf or decoratively displayed upon a table, God's word is just as forgotten as it was when it was lost in the temple. We've just lost confidence in its power. It's our tradition 
It's our history. It's some helpful platitudes. We learn the best of it in Sunday school. We'd prefer book studies to Bible studies because they're more practical. That's, that, that actually gives me th- rules and, and exhortations that help me to change. We wish preaching was a little bit more topical or maybe came with shorter passages. We're going to do an epistle next. It'll be quite short. <laughs> We wish it was more about things that people cared about today. So that we had something we could take away on a Sunday, something meaningful, something we could apply. We've given up expecting that this book really can do anything real for us or in us. But for Josiah, the word of the Lord was living and active. It was sharper than a two-edged sword so that it could cut right into Josiah's heart and it could rip open flesh and marrow so that he could see himself and repent and run to God. And wouldn't you know that's exactly what the book of Hebrews says it can be for us and what it will be through the Spirit for those who belong to God. Josiah shows us repentance brought about just by God's voice, that repentance that can be worked in you. And then he doesn't just mourn his sin. He runs from it. He immediately sends messengers to Huldah, the prophetess, who says that God's wrath is indeed coming, as the book of the law says, who says that even Josiah despite God preserving him in his lifetime for his faithfulness, can do nothing to stop that wrath from coming. We will return to that prophecy. But for now, I want to note that this does not deter Josiah from his commitment, his total commitment to lead his people to seek the Lord. Now, remember, a few generations ago, Hezekiah heard a similar word from God, that he would be spared, that he would be guarded in his own lifetime, but even his own sons would be dragged away into exile. And his response was... The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? We see none of that self-involved cowardice in Josiah. He gets all the people left in Judah after being told that he can do nothing to preserve them after him. He gets everybody in Judah, everybody in the north, and he leads them to renew their relationship with God. He is desperate to see in these people the same repentance worked by God's word that has been worked in him. He commits in front of all of them that his heart will be totally devoted to God and all that he has heard in the book of the law. This is what Josiah's repentance looks like. It's active. It doesn't just say sin is bad. It doesn't just mourn over sin. It doesn't just reject sin. It runs from sin and runs into a covenant relationship with God, seeing God as his only hope. It's a wellspring of the heart that doesn't just say sin is wicked, but says God is so much better than sin. And then this repentance commits publicly to unwaveringly depend upon God alone. This is not just a commitment that I will do better. It is knowing that I cannot do better. 
And I run from my strength and I run to the Lord in whom I must depend. And I must depend upon his total atonement and grace rather than my actions. We see this in the events that follow in the reign of Josiah. What I believe we are meant to see as the height of his reign. Let's open up 2 Chronicles 35 and read verses 1 to 19. 2 Chronicles 35. Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. And he said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house that Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. You need not carry it on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people, Israel. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses by your divisions as prescribed in the writing of David, king of Israel, and the document of Solomon, his son. And stand in the holy place according to the groupings of the father's houses, of your brothers, the lay people, according to the division of the Levites by father's household, and slaughter the Passover lamb, and consecrate yourselves, and prepare for your brothers to do according to the word of the Lord by Moses. Then Josiah contributed to the lay people as Passover offerings for all who were present, lambs and young goats from the flock, to the number of 30,000 and 3,000 bulls. These were from the king's possessions, and his officials contributed willingly to the people, to the priests and to the Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, Jehiel, the chief officers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 Passover lambs and 300 bulls. Conaniah also and Shemaiah, and Nethanel, his brothers, and Hashabiah, and Jael, and Josabad, the chiefs of the Levites, gave to the Levites for the Passover offerings 5,000 lambs, and young goats, and 500 bulls. When the service had been prepared for the priests, stood in their place, and the Levites in their divisions according to the king's command, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb, and the priests threw the blood that they received from them, while the Levites flayed the sacrifices, and they set aside the burnt offerings that they might distribute them according to the groupings of the fathers' houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord, as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did with the bulls, and they roasted the Passover lamb with fire according to the rule, and they boiled the holy offerings in pots and cauldrons and in pans and carried them quickly to all the lay people. And afterward, they prepared for themselves and for the priests, because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were offering the burnt offerings and the fat parts until night. So the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priests, the son of Aaron. The singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their place according to the command of David, and Asaph and Haman, and Jeduthun, the king's seer, and the gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not need to depart from their service, for their brothers the Levites prepared for them. So all the service of the Lord was prepared that day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. And the people of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time, and the feast of unleavened bread seven days. No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah. This Passover was kept. As with Hezekiah, we are given a very detailed account 
of everything that Josiah did to lead the people to remember this atonement for sin that happened in Egypt, that deliverance from bondage, which was the foundation of who Israel was as a people. To celebrate Passover, to offer those sacrifices, was for the people to remember who they were. You are a people who God has paid for with blood shed on your behalf so that you would belong to him. Passover reminded them that the only thing that separated them from the Egyptians who died through the 10 plagues or from the Canaanites who were displaced before them, the only difference was grace. That is what made Israel, Israel, God's grace to them. It was because of grace that they were not God's enemies, that they were instead his people. Now to prepare for this celebration, Josiah orders the worship in the temple and has the ark returned. We're not actually sure why it wasn't there in the moment, but in bringing it back, we see Josiah being so eager for his people to enjoy the relationship with God that they had when God designed that ark. Get that ark back in God's house. Get his priests and his Levites in order because we want to be this people committed to God that we were meant to be when God gave us these gifts at Sinai. A people who would find God among them in his house, who would be able to go to him for atonement for sin and delight in being his possession through peace, his peace and his grace. The chronicler tells us this celebration was not just a highlight of Josiah's reign, but in Judean history. This was a highlight for Israel. No Passover like it, he says, has been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites. For our readers of Chronicles, this is like reading an account of Armistice Day or a VE day, you wish you were there. You'd like to have seen the joy in their faces. You would have loved to have participated with them in that celebration. And Josiah in the midst of that is your historical hero. He's your Churchill or your Patton. You would have loved, you would just love to see men like that back again. Those who truly loved God who obeyed his commands, who loved his people, who led them well, through whom the people got to enjoy righteousness. You imagine the old men of Judah sitting around having a coffee. We just need another Josiah. We don't get men like him anymore. The last great son of David. This leads us, of course, to the turn in the story, which as Derek says, we all know is coming. It's always coming. It's no way surprising anymore. Let's finish our account of Josiah. Starting at 2 Chronicles 35, verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house 
with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words from Necho, from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King uh, Josiah. And the king said to his servants, take me away for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds, according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his acts first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Now despite all that humility, all of that faithfulness, that love for the Lord, that love for his people, which does mark Josiah's entire reign, he, perhaps the best son of David, can still fall to pride. He can look back in all that God has done for his people through Josiah and attribute that success to himself just enough to challenge a stronger king to battle. And in this case, because Josiah should have known his sin, the chronicler tells us that it was really the foreign king who better understood what God's will was that day. Now you might have noticed in this account of Josiah's death as he disguises himself and goes into battle and is killed by an archer, how much this death of the best of kings looks like the death of Ahab, the worst of kings. For Josiah, the great son of David, who has just led the people in a Passover never before seen in Israel, to be killed just like Ahab, not only in the same situation, but by the same pride. What a painful conclusion that such was still possible for a king who could provide such an encouraging account. It's a sad final picture of a faithful king who still succumbed to pride, who showed that even the best of the sons of David were not free from disastrous sin. Now, this conclusion does not suddenly turn Josiah into a wicked man. The chronicler esteems Josiah upon his death. The people esteem Josiah upon his death. They give him greater respect at his burial than perhaps any king before him. We hear the laments from the people from Jeremiah, and we hear that they're still lamenting as Chronicles is being written. In the final assessment, what do we have in Josiah? We have a great king. One of the greatest Israel has seen who loved the Lord with almost incomparable affection. A man as much like David as a descendant of David could be. And a sinner. A man who was not perfect. Who did love righteousness. Who did repent of sin. Where does this leave God's people? What was this incomparably upright and successful son of David able to accomplish for God's people 
Not enough. Not enough to save them. The death of Josiah, the great man who still sinned, leaves Israel lamenting and lamenting and lamenting and lamenting. And part of that lament shows the reality that Josiah could at best postpone the sorrow of Judah. He could not stop their road to ruin. That's our second point this morning. In Josiah, an imperfect man who dearly loved the Lord and his people, repented of sin, was enough to be a great son of David. But here's our second point. Despite Josiah's love for the Lord, he ultimately failed to be what God's people needed to be saved. This man who stood tall among the kings who came before him was not enough to preserve hope for God's people after his death. This is clearly stated in the prophecy that is given by Huldah after Josiah finds the book of the law when he sends the priest to consult Huldah. Let's listen again to what she said to him in chapter 34. Verse 23, and she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you've humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. Josiah saw that the law warned of God's wrath. He saw that his people were committing the sins deserving of God's wrath, and Holduk confirms those concerns. God's punishment is coming. The time of patience is soon going to be over. Now, God is pleased with Josiah. He's pleased with his repentance. He's pleased with his humility. He is so pleased that he will postpone this disaster in Josiah's lifetime. But after Josiah dies, the just wrath will still come. And we've seen that Josiah does not thus give up trying to bring about faithfulness in his people. He renews north and south in covenants with God. He leads them in the Passover but there is nothing that perhaps even the best son of David could do to stop God's judgment from coming. And in a way, even this great son of David even hastened that day of wrath because it was his pride and folly that led to his premature death in battle. In fact, the author of Kings in his account of Josiah puts, frames Josiah's reign exactly this way. Second king says, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath. 
For all of this, says the author of Kings, the Lord would not turn from his wrath. For our readers in Chronicles, Josiah then is a pretty bitter, sweet memory. The last great son of David. The last picture of what a Messiah could be. The kings who come after Josiah, they're barely sons of David at all. Their holding of the office is short and shallow compared with Josiah. And so the chronicler says, the people of Israel lamented Josiah and lamented and lamented. And we're still lamenting as the author of Chronicles was writing. Josiah was a good enough king to be mourned by his people, but not a good enough king to stop them from mourning. Not a good enough king to keep them from the despair that would come from the fact that he could not preserve the good that he had done after his own life. He was the last great hope, the last great Messiah, and that hope died with him. The people were mourning as they returned to Israel. They would be mourning even as they raised the temple, even as Jerusalem was restored. They would be mourning after that as the Greeks invaded. They'd be mourning after that as the Romans occupied Israel. As Herod was put up by Caesar as a puppet king, as Caesar Augustus counted all the people of Israel in his census, they would be mourning Josiah. A king who could celebrate God's atonement and offer that atonement with them, but could not purify their hearts. A king who could mourn and repent when he heard about God's wrath, but couldn't take that wrath from their shoulders. A king then who could buy them a few years in the land, but could not secure for them a lasting hope. Which is why we can be so amazed by God's grace when we hear that Josiah was in fact not the last great son of David. And this is our final point this morning. In Christ Jesus, we meet the true and better last son of David who can secure a salvation for his people which no other king could. Josiah here near the end of our history in Chronicles looks like a great summary of any good thing that was done by the kings before him. He is really a greatest hits playlist of everything that they did well. Restoring the temple, celebrating Passover, leading the people to see God's atonement, listening to the law, purifying the land, unifying the people, loving them deeply, loving God, repenting of sin, drawing their eyes to him. And this wonderful cumulative picture of this good son of David didn't have to just be a last hurrah. In fact, it became a prophecy. It became an arrow to point forward to the greater Josiah who was coming. He showed them everything that a king of David could be and everything that a king of, uh, of the line of David had not yet been. He showed them everything that they could have and still everything that they needed. Could there somehow be an even better Josiah? 
Someone who could accomplish all that Josiah did without the pride, without the limitation of what he just could not, what he was powerless to do. Someone who could really deal with sin, who could really secure God's people in the land, who couldn't just postpone wrath but take it. Jesus comes into their mourning as the better Josiah. The joy of the morning dawns in the night of mourning. Josiah's devotion to the Lord and to Israel was a foretaste of the devotion of Jesus. Josiah got proud and wavered in his commitment, and that pride was costly to God's people. But what does Jesus look like in his life? Humbly committing to greater and greater humiliation and disgrace until he dies the death of a criminal. So while Josiah's death hastens judgment upon God's people, Christ's death takes judgment off of God's people. Josiah could commemorate the atonement that delivered God's people from slavery. Christ could be an atoning sacrifice that delivers God's people eternally from slavery. Josiah bringing those lambs that God desired to teach God's people about their need for a sacrifice was a prophetic picture of the great sacrifice, the Lamb of God that was coming once for all to atone for sin. And so while Josiah's kingship ultimately only postponed the day of disaster, Christ's kingship resulted in an eternal hope that was secured just as surely as Jesus died on that cross and then rose from the dead. Josiah's death leaves the people mourning. Christ's death leads to resurrection. Our king is still enthroned. He ascended to heaven where he sits over all his creation, and one day we will see his throne, and we will rejoice and dwell eternally with him in his secure kingdom. Josiah was a good king. I don't know if any of us could hear about his reign and say, I think I could do better. I would rather trust myself than Josiah. Can you, can you imagine that you would have been more faithful, more committed to God, more committed to his people than Josiah? Josiah is exactly the kind of man that the people in this world are desperate to put their hope in. He would have everybody excited. Let's get behind Josiah. Things are really gonna change. They're finally gonna improve, maybe lastingly improve. He's that kind of person that we're scouring the earth to find to put our hope in. Now at this point, we might all have a different idea of who that would be, that person we had looked upon and said, that, that guy is gonna bring lasting hope whether it's JFK or Gandhi or Mandela or Margaret Thatcher. This is the person who's going to make us feel secure, who's going to bring us lasting peace, somebody that we can put our hope in and keep our hope there. And where do these hopes leave us? They leave us looking back on the good old days. We get caught in a cycle of hope and disappointment. You see that, don't you, as you're looking in at people during an election, that hope, here he is, 
There they come, the one who's going to bring lasting change. And then you look back on the person who ascended to that throne and said, here come the sunny days. And how do people feel about them just a few years later? Even if they were to persevere in pursuing that hope their whole life, where does that leave us? Looking back on the good old days, looking for the next promise of hope to come around, the next fresh-faced candidate, the next cultural movement, the next idea of morality, the next promise of peace for us to jump on, the next bandwagon is coming. We somehow don't learn. Now, if we know Christ, friends, let us not get caught up in this cycle of flickering hope that ends in grief. Even the real-life Josiahs, those who actually love God, who truly desire to do what God requires, who love God's people, who are devoted, all of that, do not leave your hope there. And you do not need to, because the greater Josiah is already here. Christian, we have hope. Not just hope that I want you to know, but you have a hope that these people caught in their cycle of hope and despair are so desperately in need of. You know that we ourselves are lost without that hope. It is here in this book. It is written by God for you. This message of Christ, of his death and resurrection and promise of eternal life, which can break our hearts, which can transform our hearts, which can cause us who threw ourselves upon the flickering hopes of this world to cast ourselves on the eternal hope of the cross. Let us not lose confidence in that hope. It is the hope that our children need. Proclaim it to the next generation. It is the hope that can lead you to see God as better than sin. It is the hope that the Holy Spirit works through. Let us never for a moment want to trade it for the best hope in this world. Let's not become dull how much better Jesus is than the best that we could put forward, better than David, better than Moses, better than you and me. The one sure hope from God. Let's lay down our confidence in ourselves, in everything else that would lead us to despair. Let us all just put our hope and trust in the hands of the one who loved God's people more than any king, who could take the wrath they deserved, who could offer his people a secure place in his kingdom. Make that your confidence every day. The confidence that we reject sin to enjoy, the confidence that we give our children, trusting that this confidence is worked by the Spirit to the glory of our Messiah, who will reign in peace in his kingdom forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as good as Josiah was, that he was not the last son of David, the last even good son of David. We thank you that Christ did come, that he accomplished what the best of us 
could not accomplish, that he could secure a lasting hope for his people. So, Father, may we give up our striving or putting our trust in anything that this world or any of us can offer, and may we simply cast ourselves in repentance and faith and love upon Jesus Christ, the good King, who loves his God enough to be obedient to death, who rose again and loves his people so dearly as to receive all those who call upon his name and who will reign forever and ever. Praise and glory from his people are due to him forever and ever, we pray in his name, amen.